0: And so from the very beginning of my doctoral studies, I was all fresh off of that experience of the purification of the church. And as I was studying all these research articles and, and books about leadership and effective leadership, it was all kind of accumulating. It's like, okay, where should I research that can make the greatest impact to help the church going forward? And that's where the idea started to coalesce about these two related points of the leadership styles of bishops and the health of diocese. And that posed a very steep challenge. because. There was no research out there, no study has ever been done on the leadership styles of bishops. They're a difficult group to get a hold of. They don't open up easily, and they're not going to reveal their leadership style to just anyone. So you could get anecdotal or qualitative studies, but to get a quantitative study on the leadership styles of bishops, steep challenge. And the other side of that research question is the health of diocese. And the big question there is, well, how do you measure the health of a diocese? And then, how do you compare a large diocese against a small diocese? So, all these questions started to percolate like, how am I going to do this?
1: Welcome to the Huntley Leadership Podcast, helping leaders be a positive catalyst in the people they support, the organizations they serve, and the communities they live. This podcast will make you think, laugh, and grit your teeth with new determination to make your parish or business a place of transformation, passion, and purpose. If you're still breathing you are powered for impact welcome to the huntley leadership podcast your go-to destination for insightful conversations on leadership across diverse landscapes i'm your host today ron huntley and we're going to delve into the intersection of faith and leadership with a remarkable guest father daniel randenberg father daniel shares his groundbreaking research on leadership within the catholic church and its impact on dioceses worldwide. Drawing from both qualitative and quantitative studies, Father Daniel sheds light on surprising findings, including the correlation between bishops' leadership styles and the health of a diocese. He uncovers the importance of intentionality in fostering vocations, and even touches on an unexpected connection between marriage rates and diocesan vitality. But it doesn't stop there. Father Daniel delves into the surveys of bishops, revealing both commendable qualities and areas for growth. He advocates for enhanced leadership formation for priests and offers insights on the navigating the complexities of leadership in larger dioceses. So join us as we embark on this enlightening journey with Father Daniel, exploring the transformative power of leadership within the church. And remember... Please subscribe to our YouTube channel and head over to our website to stay connected for more thought-provoking discussions on leadership. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Huntley Leadership Podcast. If you're here for the first time, I think you're going to really enjoy today's show. Uh, With me today is my guest, Daniel Brandenburg, and he's done some interesting research that we wanted to share with you, particularly along leadership and diocese. So, Father Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ron. It's great to be with you. So let me ask you, what prompted you to do further studies and why this topic? T- tell us a little bit about that.
0: Oh, you're probing deeply here, Ron. Well, I'll be honest, as I always am. Uh, there kind of three, there's three, three reasons why I dove into this research uh, on uh, organizational health applied to the church and diocese and the leadership of bishops. The first one was eminently practical. Um, I was, at the mm-hmm. time when I started my doctoral uh, work, I was uh, head of all of our schools in the U.S., Canada, and Asia, and uh, for Regnum Christi and the Legionaries of Christ, and in that work, you know, you're working with educators, it's really helpful to have uh, an advanced degree, especially in education, so it was functional, you know, I, I, was, I already had, you know, the two licentiate degrees in philosophy and theology and my uh, studies for the priesthood, so I figured, uh, I'll go ahead and get a doctorate in education, that'll... Give me some cachet working with educators. So that was the first reason. The second reason, I will confess, was just pride. (laughs) A little bit of vanity. (laughs) And I told you I was gonna be honest. You know, It sounds cool to have like a PhD after your name or EDD in my case. Uh, And so there's a little bit of human pride that comes into it, I think. Uh, And I think anyone who's honest with themselves when they're doing that, there's probably a little bit of that mixed in. It wasn't all my right. primary motive, and I certainly worked to purify my intention, but that was a secondary mm. motive. Uh, and I think the most important motive for me uh, in all of this, Ron, was I, I love the church. I love Christ. Mm. And I want to help the church to be more effective in carrying out its mission because it's literally life or death. Eternal mm. life or eternal death. And, and so if I can in any way, shape, or form advance just a little bit the the effectiveness of the church in carrying out its mission, blessed be God. And that's really Amen. why I poured myself into this these uh, doctoral studies and my doctoral dissertation.
1: Love it. And I love your honesty. And I love the fact that it's like, yeah, and I worked hard to purify my motives. Like it's <laughs> like, yeah, way to go. Like, good ass.
0: Yes. You. Well, you're kind of naturally purified of that because the the work to to get a doctorate is actually it was tougher than I expected at the beginning. And I've right. been through sure. studies my whole life, but uh, I, I was, uh, pleasantly surprised cause I like a challenge, but going yes. through areas of study that I hadn't done anything before, like statistics and, you know, yeah. uh, all those areas, which were new for me, uh, was great. Uh, but it forced me to say, do I really want to do this? Cause there were several <laughs> of my cohort members who dropped out of the program. because uh, yes, it, it
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations for finishing. I look forward to it. But you said, you know. I, I love the church. I love its mission, and, and I want to help the, the church be more effective at carrying out its mission. What is the church's mission in, in your—what would you say the church's mission is? Very simply. It's to bring
0: people to eternal life with God forever. And in mm-hmm. order to do that, we have to know Jesus Christ, know his love, experience his love, and accept his salvific uh, grace in our lives. Mm-hmm. And so Amen. without bringing people to an encounter with Jesus Christ, the church mm-hmm. can't complete its mission. And that mm-hmm. goes, goes beyond sometimes what we can talk about just as statistics from a, like baptism or people going to the sacraments. It goes deeper mm-hmm. than that because it's the encounter with God's love. It's accepting yes. Christ as one's Savior in one's own, own life and following yeah.
1: Him. Amen. So that's
0: you- part and parcel of the church's mission.
1: I love that. And, and, and when you talk, and again, I just want to dig into this a little bit as before, sure. we, before we move on, because I just think it's so important. But it's so easy to use, I find in, in the work that I do, sometimes <laughs> sometimes even in our parish when we were really driving to be missional and to make a difference, we would use language uh, for long periods of time only to realize we weren't all saying the same thing and it, yes. or meaning the same thing when we use church language, which actually... Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, uh, <laughs> wait a minute. How do you define that? We realize we don't all have the same definitions. And so what's it mean to encounter Christ from a Catholic mm-hmm. perspective? Like, what does that mean?
0: I think it means to to really realize that Christ is alive, that he's not just an idea. He's not a doctrine. He's not a, his, merely a historical figure, uh, nor is he merely a great teacher, that he is The second person of the Blessed Trinity, who, as St. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he loved me, and he gave himself for me. And that's Mm -hmm. in the present. That's not not some historical thing, or that's not just a generic thing for all Catholics or all Christians. He knows me. He loves me. And and to experience that. And there are manifold ways in which people can experience and encounter Jesus Christ. It can be Mm -hmm. in the sacraments, a a beautiful confession. Mm -hmm or in, in personal prayer, or in adoration. I mean, God has so many ways of showing up in our lives when we open our hearts to Him. But it, it's that, that, that experience that Jesus is alive, and He loves me. That's what I would call the encounter with Christ.
1: I, that's so cool. And that, you just described my experience. And, and you said an interesting word there, when we realize... Yeah, because it's it's never not there, but I don't always realize it. And I remember and I, and there's been different seasons of my life where that realization has been refreshed, renewed or deepened. And it's like, oh, yes. this keeps getting better. But I'll never right. forget the first time mm-hmm. when I realized he knew my name. He knows me. He loves me. He died for me despite right. my selfishness, my foolishness, my mm-hmm. all kinds of things I'm not too proud of. And it's And that just changed me. And then it totally. multiplied over time. And so, I, 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 again, I think that's really important because sometimes I find in the church, because our theology is so rich and our sacramental faith is so beautiful, I love it. A born Catholic, always be Catholic. I love my Catholic faith. And yet, sometimes going to Mass and experiencing the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist people don't realize sometimes, they, they may not have had that encounter. And That's and our sacramental exactly right. faith in the Eucharist makes so much more sense once we've encountered Jesus and, and have, have experienced the love of the Father. And yet, if our idea of of encounter as well, just bring them to Mass, and then they see Jesus or receive Jesus, and then they've encountered Jesus. And it's like, well, I know what you mean, but-
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: I explain it to some, sometimes
0: to people run in this way that you know our Catholic faith is like a treasure chest of, mm-hmm. of traditions and liturgy and doctrines and all kinds of beautiful things that lead Amen. to a fullness of life, but it's locked and there's a key, and the key is Jesus. And once you have the key and and, and have that encounter with Christ, it unlocks the treasure chest and it's like. Whoa, I never knew there was so much here. I didn't value the treasure that I had. But it's just like like an old dusty box until you've got the key that opens it up.
1: So good. So good. That totally sets up the rest of our conversation. I love that we got the chance to dig into that because, boy, we can walk by that treasure box and and not value it. But boy, when you find Jesus, when you realize how much he loves you and what he did for you so that you could have life and life to the full, everything else in that box has so much value. You'll spend the rest of your life relishing in the richness of the church. Oh, yeah. So Mm -hmm. good, Father Daniel. Thank you. (laughs) That's so good. So talk to us over here. So Research on, on bishops, on dioceses, on leadership. Tell us more. What were you researching? How did you lay it out? And what did you find? There's a small question, three small questions. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'm going to go with a different question other than what you asked, because I think it's important for people to understand the backstory of, of why mm. I did this research. I gave you kind of the general of why I went into the doctoral studies to begin with. But this specific research question was that, mm. is, what's the correlation between leadership styles of Catholic bishops? and the health of their diocese. That is the specific research question. And there's a story behind that because uh, in 2019 and fall of 2019 or no, sorry, fall of 2018 in October, I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma cancer and I was dying. Uh, My organs were shutting down and I was learning that this multiple myeloma put off a type of protein into my blood that was clogging up my kidneys. And because of that, my kidneys were not not being able to clean out my blood. Toxins were building up in my blood, and I was being poisoned from within. Mm -hmm. And I I began to understand the importance of the the kidneys. And right around that same time, when I was in the hospital, when I was diagnosed, I said, Lord, I don't know why you're allowing this, but let it be all for the good of the church. And Mm -hmm. right around that same time, the scandal with Cardinal McCarrick, came out into the forefront into the news you know yes. and you know, how he had kind of progressed through the ranks and things have been glossed over and his abuse of seminarians all this stuff had been hidden and i was so ticked off <laughs> i mean to yeah. be blunt that's
1: I was the proper angry. response
0: yeah i was so angry because not only because of what he did and what he got away with and how he got promoted further and further but also because of the fact that like when are we going to clean this up when are we going to learn the lessons from the past and no longer condone or turn a, a blind eye to these things going on within the church? And I was frustrated because, you know, as just a simple priest with no levers of control, you know, no power or authority. Mm-hmm. I can't, I'm not the Pope. I'm not a bishop. I can't change anything. So I was really frustrated. And then it came to me, uh, in prayer one day as I was going through those initial stages of the treatment. Uh, came to me uh, a memory of St. Therese of Lisieux because her feast day is yeah. the beginning of October, right when I was diagnosed. And So praying on her feast day, I, I remembered how much I was struck by her love for Christ, love for the church, and her phrase in her autobiography where she talks about wanting to love, loving Christ so much, loving the church so much that she wanted to be a heart pumping blood uh, into every corner of the church. And I thought, wow, I, so awesome! She's already taken the heart, but maybe I can be the kidney.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> I said, out the toxins. I love exactly. it exactly. <laughs> so I said, "Lord, help me to
0: be a kidney for the church," and I offer all of my suffering uh, for the purification of your church. And I, I won't go and bore you with all the details, but it was a it was long and a painful uh, months ahead in going through all okay. the uh, the cancer treatments, bone marrow bu- uh, trans, uh, bone marrow transplant, all kinds of things. Um, and, and I truly believe that the Lord did work um, many miracles and many graces for the church uh, through my suffering. And so fast forward, I, uh, a year later, uh, the doctors told me that I, I had the uh, the cancer was in remission. I started my doctoral studies. And so from the very beginning of my doctoral studies, I was all f- fresh off of that experience of the purification of the church. And as I was studying all these uh you know research articles and and books about leadership and effective leadership it, it was all kind of accumulating it's like okay where should i research that can make the greatest impact to help the church going forward and that's where the idea started to coalesce about these uh these two related points of uh, the leadership styles of bishops and the health of dioceses, uh and and that posed a very steep uh, challenge, Ron, because there was no research out there. No study has ever been done on the leadership styles of bishops. They're just they're a difficult group to get a hold of. They don't open up easily, and they're not going to reveal their leadership style to just anyone. Uh, so you could get anecdotal or qualitative studies, but to get a quantitative study on the leadership styles of bishops, steep challenge. And then on the flip side, <laughs> and the other side of that uh, research question is the health of diocese. And the big question there is, well, how do you measure the health of a diocese? Yeah. And then how do you compare a large diocese against a small diocese? So all these questions started to percolate, like, how am I going to do this? <laughs> so that gives you a little bit of the background, um, hopefully, and helpful for our listeners to so uh, get a so, grasp uh, of what we're talking about.
1: Oh, that's so good. And for our listeners, just pause right now, head over to the website and 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 hit uh, contact us and tell us, like answer Father Daniel's questions. Before you hear the rest of this, <laughs> what would you say is a healthy diocese? Like if you had mm. seven to ten measures, if you're listening, what do you think? I love to hear what you have to say before you hear the rest of this podcast, because it's an interesting question. Again, it's one of those things question. that, that you know, we're probably going to have people would have different opinions and it's okay. Yeah. But we need to, for, especially for research, you need to decide what that is so that you can run it across all the other, uh, you know, the inputs that you're bringing into your study. And so anyway, That's keep going. Right.
0: Well, <laughs> anyway, so with that research question, I started looking, oh, what's the best way to, uh, to tackle this and break it apart? So I ended yeah. up coming with what's called a mixed method approach which entails qualitative study and quantitative studies. And I ended up with four data sets that I tied together uh, to answer the question. So very complex design. It was the very thing that our professors told us, do not do this in a doctoral dissertation. Don't do a mixed method study. (laughs) And not only did I do a mixed method study, I did a double mixed method study because there were four separate data sets. So. Very complex design. I don't recommend it to anyone, but it was so fascinating. (laughs) So the first, (laughs) the first data set to tackle was qualitative study. Um, and that was gathering together, uh, 20 experts uh, on the life of the church. So I asked exactly that same question you just mentioned to people. Uh, it's like, well, what do you think constitutes a healthy diocese? So I gathered together, uh, you know, prominent figures in the Catholic church, uh, one bishop, uh, several vicar generals of dioceses, um, people from religious orders, various religious orders, uh, founders of Catholic organizations like Focus and YCP, um, people who work at the USCCB, uh, so a, a broad swath of people who had that deep experience of the church in multiple dioceses in the United States, because gotcha. I thought okay. that that broad uh, swath of experience would be important. Okay. Uh, so that was the first step. Interview all those okay. people in small groups and try to get a, a grasp of what they thought was important for a healthy diocese. And I I'll you. stop there if you want to ask any questions. or.
1: Oh, no, this uh, is great. About... Keep going. No, that's okay. awesome. I love that. Okay, that makes sense. Love it. Yeah.
0: So that was, that was the first step. Qualitative study, uh, interviewing these uh, key people who knew something about the, the church. And yep. from that, starting to identify, okay, what are the factors that I should include in what will then become a basically a scoring matrix mm. to score how healthy dioceses are. Now, there were a whole bunch of really great ideas that came out of this first part of the study as far as yeah. things we should measure that would show what's a healthy diocese and what's not. The big challenge there is readiness uh, of the data, okay? Right. Because you can go to one particular diocese. And get some interesting data on what they considered to be healthy but there's no guarantee that another diocese has the same data that that they've they've collected and so it presents immediately a very big problem if you want to look at all the different ideas that they had and see where could i pull data from that would be viable across all these different dioceses. right so with that well then there was a second step in that too because uh, i had to do some validation the factors. So I ended up selecting twelve different factors that I thought would be significant. There was data uh, nationally available across all the different dioceses, and most of those data points came from the official Catholic Directory. This brought me to the second uh, section of, of the data uh, data points, which was taking the official Catholic Directory on all those twelve factors that I had identified yeah. and doing statistical studies on it. Make sure that there was no collinearity, which for <laughs> statistical nerds out there they know what that means. Uh, I had no idea what it meant until I did uh, you know, all my, my, my studies and uh, several classes on statistics so I could do this work. Uh, but I had to make sure that basically there was no confounding factors. They weren't overlaid so much that they would okay. be like uh, duplicating each other. And in okay. fact, I did find two of the factors that had a problem of collinearity. As soon as I backed one of those out, that took care of the problem. So, but that brought me down to 11 factors instead of 12. So, it is simple. Uh, So, then I took uh, those 11 factors and scored every diocese in the United States from the year 2000 to the year 2020. uh, And started to discover all kinds of fascinating things. Because I was looking at these 11 factors. And let, let me tell you. Some of those, uh, factors, because I'm sure that was That'd your next awesome. question.
1: Yeah, yeah, I can't <laughs> wait to hear it. I'm sure everybody's <laughs> listening. Go, what are the factors? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: So they are baptisms, first communions, uh, confirmations, marriages, uh, funerals, um, uh, number of Catholic seminarians, number of ordinations to the priesthood, um, the number of students in Catholic schools. Um, and then, number of students in Catholic, uh, religious education. And then the final factor was a financial accountability score uh, that comes from another organization. So, those were the 11 factors. So, when you, when say, I started, a, when
1: you say financial accountability, that's, not, mm-hmm. that's different than finances in terms Correct. of what the, how much money is coming
0: in. Exactly. So the financial accountability, is uh, it comes from an organization called, oh gosh, I just blanked on the name. Um, It's in my doctoral research, um, Voice of the Faithful, which is not a group that's known for its conservative leanings. It tend to be a little pressure group to exert pressure on the bishops to change things in a a, a certain line. But their study on financial accountability was actually really, really well done. Uh, Mm. It's very objective. And it goes by a study of each diocese's uh, own website. And they're clearly identified factors. So it's a matrix measure where they look at all different factors. And they, the, uh, a, a diocese, which does really well, can get a score of 100. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all the way down to, I think, the lowest score of this past year was around 25. Gotcha. Um, and then it ranks every diocese in the country according to their scores. So it's a, it's a very objective measure. And it's just one factor. Uh, among the 11 that I have in my uh, measure of diocesan health.
1: I think we just lost half of our listeners just right now because I think they all paused the podcast and went over to the website and looked up. that <laughs> <laughs> see, hey, where's my diocese rank? Anyway, sure. just, just kidding, of course, well, but that's really neat. It, it, there's a human curiosity that comes
0: to that. Yeah, uh, yeah, how is course. my diocese faring in, 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 yeah. the, uh, in the crowd? Uh, and that's why I think the measure has a real value because what they've done... Is by creating a public measure it's created accountability for the bishops sure. from a third party who are looking objectively at what are the criteria and uh and all the criteria are public and then they provide best practices to diocese first things something something as simple as does the diocese do the parishes have to use collection uh envelopes that are tamper proof and that have two people present to count the collection right because unfortunately there's a lot of fraud that goes on uh, in count, uh, counting the money from church collections mm-hmm. and people get sticky fingers. And so the uh, best practice for financial accountability is having those uh, tamper-proof bags in place. Right. So that's a, one of the factors that they look at among many others. Right. Um,
1: yeah. Love so, it. Okay. So you have so, your 11 factors.
0: Mm-hmm. Where do you go from there? What
1: did you do that so before? with that, then,
0: I, I looked at every diocese for that 20-year period and gave a, a, a ranked score to every diocese. Okay. So they could score points based on every one of those 11 factors in each year, and they're all relative to the other diocese. Now, I, I do have to mention a very important point here. I've heard ad nauseum in the past that, oh, we can't compare big diocese like Los Angeles against a little diocese like Stockton. They they may both be in California, but there's just it's it's a world of difference between them, and there's some truth to that. But an easy way to get rid of that difference, or at least to approximate a little bit more closely, is to divide each one of these factors by the Catholic population. Uh huh. So then, what you end up with is a a ratio which compares apples to apples. Gotcha. Uh, So there's some. Complicated, uh, not super complicated, but basically uh, weighting uh, weighting and scoring of, of each diocese. But the each year, a diocese will get a score based on those 11 factors. And then you compare it against all the diocese, other dioceses and see where they rank for that particular year, their overall score, or you can drill down and see it for a particular factor. So like, you know, where does the diocese of Little Rock, Arkansas uh, compare with the diocese of, uh, I don't know, uh, of Chicago, on its number of seminarians, yes, and that's where you find some really fascinating stuff, uh, Ron. You know, for example, uh, if you compare those two dioceses, Chicago yes. has way more seminarians than the diocese of Little Rock, sure. You know, but if you divide by the Catholic population, yes, then you start to see some really fascinating things, right? And in that case. Because the Diocese of Chicago, Archdiocese of Chicago is doing way worse than the Diocese of Little Rock as far as the proportion per capita of number of seminarians. In fact, right. if, if the Archdiocese of Chicago had the same per capita ratio as at, at Little Rock, they would have something like 650 seminarians. Oh, wow. And they have oh, like 60 or 70. Wow. So it's really fascinating uh, things mm. we start to discover as you uh, unpack that data.
1: That is fun. And so you scored every, because again, you had your 11 factors and you scored them Mm -hmm. every single year. And so just because somebody's doing well one year doesn't mean they're doing as well. And you're you're probably seeing trends. You're probably watching trends go down as you follow one diocese over the course of 20 years. Exactly.
0: And what I began to discover is I plugged in the years that every Bishop took over a diocese. I plugged that into the Excel spreadsheet. So you can see, you know, a diocese stays even, goes up or goes down as a new bishop comes in. And then it became abundantly clear that the leadership of a bishop does have an effect upon the health of the diocese. Crystal clear. Hmm. Uh, in, in the vast majority of cases, there are some cases where there's very little change, but in the majority of the change, majority of the diocese, there is an upward tick or a downward tick uh, with regard to the, the bishop in place. I'll give you one case in point uh, yep. to help illustrate the fact. Uh, in, the, in the Diocese of Albany, New York, mm-hmm. there was a bishop there who was there for many, actually several decades, mm-hmm. and averaged about seven or eight seminarians per year in that diocese over his entire uh, reign as bishop. Per year? Nice. Per year, uh, number of men in the seminary. That's not the gotcha. number of seminarians who were ordained to the priesthood. Gotcha. Okay. So the number of guys in the seminary averaged about seven or eight per year. Okay. New Bishop came on uh, in 2017, if I'm not mistaken. And all of a sudden, the number of seminarians grew the next year to 15, then 20, then 25. And then the last year that I had dated for was up to like 33, I think. Wow. Tell me, the bishop doesn't ha- make a difference in his diocese? That okay, everybody's does. on the phone
1: now, calling that diocese. Say, what are you doing? Like, that's what a great because when you see those numbers, because success breeds success, like fruitfulness breeds fruitfulness, and so usually people who are fruitful are happy to share what's working, and when we're mm-hmm. not fruitful, we just hope people don't don't notice, don't notice, <laughs> you, you know. But 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 this. This is talk about a great opportunity for shared best practices and shared learning. Yes, that's
0: really neat. And there's an organization, vocationministry.com, that they have done some uh, statistical work as well on uh, different uh, dioceses and the vocation status of each diocese. And they've shared some best practices. But one of the things that I saw very, very clearly from the data is that the intentionality of the bishop in promoting vocations is crucial super important and and talking with several of the bishops, which was the fourth part of the study. uh, I interviewed some of the top performing dioceses. so that interviewed the ordinary of the dioceses or either the bishop or the archbishop. And what I found is that all of those bishops from the top performing diocese had Mm -hmm. a clear intentionality in promoting vocations personally, and also through appointing the best possible priest as a vocation director for the
1: diocese love it now you say Honest. that as it relates to vocations which makes sense to me in other words when which you one aim, of the 11 factors you're much more likely to be successful <laughs> like right be intentional you're more likely yes. to be successful now for those dioceses who scored just in general high based on all 11 mm-hmm. were you talking to those guys as well and finding out Yes. What, what, what were you? Was it a, the same principle at play when they were intentional, they were more likely to be successful, or was it something else?
0: No. Okay. No. And this is the surprising thing.
1: <laughs> You're freaking uh, me out.
0: <laughs> I, yes, I know. So, w- one of the things I looked at was to see the, the, which of the, the 11 factors yeah. weighed most heavily on the, uh, the health score of the diocese. Hmm. I thought it would be number of ordinations to the priesthood or number of seminarians. But it wasn't. Very surprising. The the strongest factor to indicate the health of the diocese was the marriage rate. Which, when you start to think about it, at least hypothetically, I mean, this merits a whole other study. But (laughs) it makes sense because culture today is pushing very hard against marriage. We have so much cohabitation we have the breakdown of the family and so a diocese which is able to buck that trend and keep uh, uh, the sacramentality and the holiness of marriage and encourage young people to marriage and there's a not a fear of getting married they tend to be healthier in many other dimensions as well so it was a it was a surprising find for me that that was the most important factor and somewhat related to that i found that all of the other the uh 10 of the 11 factors were related to each other, like, you know, okay. more baptisms, more first Holy Communions, more confirmations, etc. Right. So 10 of the 11 are tied closely together. One of them was not. And that one was the number of seminarians, which is super fascinating because the diocese, which may not be faring well at all, if the bishop and the vocation director are very intentional in their work. They can raise up the number of seminarians, which then long-term will lead to more priests, which then affects mm-hmm. the whole cycle of the sacraments and the evangelizing work of the church. Wow. So for a, a bishop, the, the, the data is showing very clearly the most important thing for a bishop, what is it? His priests and his future priests. And we talked about that a little bit ron recently yeah but it's the data shows it very clearly and it it was a fascinating find for me because i wasn't exactly expecting to find it so clearly as as i did anecdotally i had experienced it in the past but to see it very clear in the data uh, over a 20-year period was fascinating i think that gives a lot of hope also for diocese that are struggling that maybe have gone through a, a difficult period I remember uh, when I was doing my uh, internship as a brother in preparation for the priesthood, I was stationed for three years in Denver, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And at the time, uh, there was a bishop who had been there for a long time in the diocese, and they, they had a dearth of vocations. And the bishop was talking about, we got to move towards clustering parishes, there aren't going to be priests in the future. Uh, so we're going to do these reorganization, restructuring of the church in order to Carry out mm-hmm. the church's mission going forward. Yeah. Well, he retired, and the next bishop who came in, first thing Aquila. he did was,
1: <laughs> what's that? Was it Archbishop Aquila?
0: No, no, no. He's in Denver. Um, Denver speaking about oh, the right. diocese of Colorado Springs, just to the south. Gotcha, yes. gotcha. Um, so the new bishop who came in, first thing he did was he established adoration for vocations in all the parishes, and started to go out and personally uh, work to invite young men to the priesthood. Within three years, there was no vocation shortage in the diocese of Colorado Springs anymore because of the intentional work of of that bishop. Uh, So it's a beautiful uh, case study. And I've seen that in many different dioceses across the country. When a new bishop comes in with hope, prayer, intentional work, he can uh, reverse the trend, negative trends of vocations.
1: Here, here's a, here's an interesting question and I have no idea what the answer is, but it's an interesting question. And you're the only person in the world who would know the answer to this because of all the research you've done. Well, so if, people, <laughs> if, if, if somebody has like, when is a bishop's likelihood to have impact just early and then it kind of, kind of peters off or mm. if they're going to have impact, it stays like what would, or is it, did you look at that at all?
0: That is a great question. It's actually one of the questions that I asked myself. It wasn't part of my research question, but I was looking at it uh, peripherally because in my leadership studies, I found that in the case of CEOs of companies, Mm -hmm. there is a a period after which they become less effective because they become insular and they stop listening to advice. They stop learning. And so Hmm. the sweet spot is about between five and six years is when they hit their crest. And after that, they tend to decline. Um, I did not find that in the bishops. Good. So, <laughs> uh, and and there could be various reasons for that. I'd have to hypo- hypothesize and dig into the data further. But it was there was no apparent uh, fall off for the majority of the bishops. Hmm. Um, there were a few cases where you could see a, a little dip in certain areas, uh, sure. but in general, no, there was not. And there wasn't that fall
1: off. That is fascinating. So is this going – oh, before I go there. So you also talked about leadership styles. Yes. So what describes well, those the to us? Data yeah. Set. Yeah, yeah, the
0: third data set was uh, trying to understand what the leadership styles of bishops were. Yeah. And for this part of the, the study, uh, gosh, I racked my brain and actually talked uh, extensively with Archbishop Dennis Schnur of Cincinnati. He's a good friend. He's also from Iowa. We, uh, yeah. we grew up in the same diocese in Iowa. Uh, he's obviously older than I am. But he's a phenomenal archbishop. He's actually yeah. made the cut for one of the top performing dioceses in the country. And I, I spoke with him and asked him, Archbishop, how am I going to get the bishops uh, to actually answer a survey that I sent to them? Yeah. And so he agreed to write a cover letter, uh, which then I sent to every ordinary in the country. So those were the the head bishop of every di- of the 177 dioceses in the United States. There were a couple yes. vacant dioceses at the time, yep. uh, and. With his introduction letter, um, I got a decent response rate from the bishops, about 30, 32, 33 percent of the bishops. So around uh, 51 bishops, if I'm not mistaken, uh, answered the survey. And the survey that I sent out was the uh, multi-factor leadership questionnaire, the MLQ 5X. Uh, this is a a, a well-researched uh, leadership style type of survey. It sure. was yep. developed by... Um, uh, Avolio and Jung uh, back in 1999, if I'm not mistaken, on the date. And it's been used with millions of people across the world, which gives it a, a, a huge value because I didn't have to create a new survey and right. I could benchmark it against other industries and then compare, okay, where do the bishops hmm. uh, fall on this, this, this particular aspect of their leadership as compared with uh, other leaders in other industries. So that was very leadership.
1: How many leadership styles are there in that particular um, body of work?
0: The MLQ 5x uh, brings a, a, a spectrum uh, that it goes from laissez-faire to transactional to transformational. So those are the okay. three uh, leadership styles that it uh, basically shows where a person falls. Uh, mm-hmm. Laissez-faire is, of course, you know, hands off. It's really the abdication of leadership. Uh, transactional is more like you know you scratch my back I'll scratch yours you know do what you're you're told and I'll pay your 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 salary um, wages yeah so it's yeah yeah you're doing yeah. a job whereas transformational is a leadership style which draws out the best of people uh, draws out mm. a sense of engagement in the mission and it's correlated with all the best outcomes in leadership okay. and now transactional and transformational are not opposed to each other because sure. there needs to be a certain justice you need to pay people mm-hmm. well you need to treat them fairly uh, mm-hmm. but trans transformational leadership goes beyond the transactional uh, yes. but it's not opposed to the trans uh, transactional
1: if that makes Got sense it. and so of the 30 plus bishops that you serve that came back with the surveys 50 plus did, oh 50 plus 30 yeah what yeah plus. what did you see all
0: kinds of fascinating things. I mean, we didn't need a whole other podcast just to talk about that. <laughs> but I'll give you, a, a, you can, anyone can uh, go ahead and uh, find my doctoral research online and they can oh, uh, pick up art themselves, uh, the findings, the results, uh, some of the really fascinating things that come out. But How what did I, I get found, to that? Um, you can go on ProQuest, and, ProQuest? And do, okay. uh, or just do a Google search uh, on the title of the doctoral dissertation. So it's called, let me open up the title page so you can, it's called Developing a Diocesan Vitality Index to Explore Leadership Styles Employed by U.S. Catholic Bishops in Top Performing Latin Rite Dioceses from 2000 to 2020.
1: Awesome. I know that's and I'll a mouthful. include that in the show notes. That's okay. I'll put it in the show notes for everybody. So sure. thank you for letting us know that. So oh, Sorry, keep going. What did you? So give if you me a little do a Google snapshot, search yeah. on, on
0: yeah. that title, it's part of that title with my, yeah. my name, uh, Father yeah. Daniel Brandenburg it'll show up and you can download it for free. Nice. Uh, it's a publicly available data. Um, so a, a couple of highlights uh, of what I found in the data is that the bishops scored very high on what's called um, idealized influence, which okay. basically means they're good role models. Like they walk mm. the talk. Uh, mm-hmm. People see them as models of character, uh, forthrightness, uprightness, they have good intentions. So that's, that's very encouraging.
1: <laughs> and that um, doesn't surprise me either because they don't apply for the job. Right. That's you know, right. We, we, we get the, the nuncio that, that comes and that's what it's called. Knocks, right. That they knocks yeah. the calls
0: or calls, calls and yeah. says, Hey, you want to be a bishop? and and a lot of men are saying
1: no I don't <laughs> exactly so it's other people who see the holiness and and and, and yes. valor in these men most times I would imagine mm-hmm. so that's beautiful that doesn't surprise me but and isn't that a right. wonderful testimony to what the church tries to do so mm-hmm. cool
0: mm-hmm. Also, and, and there were several other very positive things that we saw in the leadership styles of the bishops that came out from the, the data um, there were also some things that were not not quite so good uh, okay. the bishops not surprised not surprising, it was according to my hypothesis, bishops scored very high on laissez-faire leadership, like okay. beyond the 70th percentile. Wow. Yes, uh, which hmm. is, is not good. Uh, now I hypothesize about that a bit in the dissertation because the interior culture within the Catholic Church uh, is such that the, the rule of thumb is, you come as a pastor or a bishop into a new place, don't make any changes for the first year. Right now. I was explaining that to my dissertation chair. Now you, you and I are like, oh yeah, well, of course, you know, you don't make any big changes at the beginning. I was explaining this to my dissertation chair, who was a Jewish guy and a professor at a university in New York. And he said, what? I, I can't <laughs> imagine the CEO of a company who comes into a company to, to make changes or fix things or make it better. Yeah. And he says, I'm not going to make any changes in the first year.
1: He's making changes the first
0: day. Yeah. You know, he's, he's, he's been hired to, to turn this thing around and make it better. Yeah. So there's the whole mindset within the church is a little bit different. <laughs> Well, and it needs
1: to be because the thing with the CEO is everybody's married to their paycheck. We don't pay particularly well in the church anyway. And the majority of people are volunteers. So you come in like a bull in a china shop. You'd be standing there by yourself. And so (laughs) that might work in corporate. It's not going to work in the church. But the other thing I wonder, Father Daniel, like in in, in my travels and speaking and the work that I do, I'll never forget this last year in 2023 heading to, to Italy. And mm-hmm. I was invited to speak at a leadership conference at that, pa- or a leadership event at the parish. And so we're getting ready, and one of the priests speaks really good English. The other guy speaks pretty good English. And so sometimes there was some um, translation needing to take place. And the whole sure. event was going to be me saying eight words and then the priest translating it in Italian. So it was as back and forth the whole time, which is sure. fine. I've done that before in Germany and things like that. So it's good. But when we were getting ready to go out and, and we we're talking about it beforehand, there's no word for leadership in Italian. Mm. And I'm like, what do you mean? And it's like, <laughs> well, it used, it's kind of like El Duce, but that was the dictator Mussolini. And so we don't right. use that word. And it's like, okay, well, and I said, well, we can just use the word leadership. And I said, okay, well, does that work? Yeah. Except <laughs> when they hear that, they think of North American egomaniacs who are just love yes. for money and to lord their yeah. their 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 power over people for their own self-interest. And it's like, well, that we can't use that word. And so they <laughs> literally didn't have a word for it. So yes. in my talk, we had to reclaim the even the concept. The concept doesn't even exist. And that's right. in Italy. And so I'm mm-hmm. telling that to my friend Who's Chinese? And he goes, "Yeah, we don't have it for in Chinese either." I'm like, "What?" Like, "Yeah, we don't have it in Chinese either." I'm like, "I'm I'm losing my mind." And I'm saying that to my <laughs> Spanish friend, and they're like, "Yeah, we don't either."
0: Uh, there's oh, there's my... a word in Spanish, but it's not quite Is the there? same. But you're right, not quite the same. Yeah, yeah but, but I mean, yeah, I don't know.
1: But but but, but it just right. says to me, like in North America, we see leadership as a real uh, opportunity to grow mm-hmm. in the skill sets required to produce more fruitfulness to glorify God. And, right. and yet in, in, in the home of the church, don't even have, don't even have a concept of it. And, yeah. and so, and in fact, I would see it again in, in the work that I do and I love doing, it. I'm so grateful for the the men I get to work with, but leadership isn't part of any of the formation of priests. Mm. or any of the follow-up for a priest. And so if you're going to be good at leadership, it, it's going it is, to be but accidental. Not formally.
0: I mean, there's the, I think what we have within the, the formation of, of, at least in the solid seminaries, you have formation yes. in virtue and self-knowledge, self-awareness, which are all yes. precursors to effective leadership. Mm-hmm. So even though there may not be formal studies of leadership, at least my own experience has been, we have a foundation for actual leadership and a, and a healthy virtuous leadership. But we we, thematically, we're not talking about it. And we're not formally studying many of the things that could help us to be better leaders. So there's definitely a place for more formalized training in leadership and understanding what Mm -hmm. works and what doesn't work. I think that would be very helpful within the church.
1: I do too. Well, and that's why we do what we do, because (laughs) leadership is my passion. My first love is Jesus and his church. And so I'm just so grateful to be a Roman Catholic. And and I'm just so blessed to be able to work with guys. But again, this is why I think your research is so exciting, Mm -hmm. because it's just giving us some insights that we've not considered before. And, And in the context of that, anytime we can learn about ourselves as the church and say, oh, What does that mean for us and 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 how is god calling me to grow and evolve in my impact in my role to serve yes
0: and and that's where the fourth uh data set that i I came up with was also fascinating uh because so the first one is qualitative did the focus groups then i did the the official catholic directory data crunching and looking at all things i found from that then the the third was the leadership styles of the bishops and then correlating that with the the scores and the rankings and seeing all kinds of interesting things the fourth one was now that i had a ranking in the diocese which which bishops had both been most effective in a positive change in their diocese score over right. their tenure i interviewed them i interviewed those top performing bishops uh and uh, interviewed 11 bishops uh, and it those conversations were awesome i mean i think anyone would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in those conversations uh, that they, they were in there. They're real men of God, uh, yes. real leaders, not full of themselves, humble right. leaders and certain hmm. servant leaders in the proper sense and transformative leaders. Most definitely, uh, with a wide range of personalities. It wasn't like they were all one personality type. Uh, and so the richness of these men, it, you know, and for me, Ron, it, it kind of rekindled, a uh, uh, hope in, in What God is doing in the leadership within the church, because I've seen so many negative things. I've seen bishops who are not very effective or uh, not very good at what they do, (laughs) Uh, Mm. but then to find all these men who are just really Mm. great and holy bishops doing so much good was very encouraging for me.
1: I bet you came out of those meetings being transformed yourself, like like you say, the whole. Yes, yeah, and then to take, you know, when you do a qualitative
0: study. You, you, look, you look at the words that the people said, look at the mm-hmm. themes that they talked about. And I had a, a guide uh, that I formulated beforehand of certain questions that I asked each one of the bishops to kind of tease out a little bit. You know, how would they respond in conflict situations? How do they deal with a recalcitrant mm-hmm. priest? What were the most difficult circumstances they had to deal with as a bishop? And the bishops, yeah. were, they were really candid. Uh, and they shared some yeah. really uh, moving stories. Um, mm. But there were some elements that emerged from across the board from those 11 most effective bishops of things that they did. Like every single one of them paid close attention to his priests. Mm. Uh, they were all personally engaged in, in uh, vocation promotion. So there were a number of these things that each of the bishops did that were common factors. And all of that's in the, uh, in the, the, the in research study as well, yeah. in the dissertation.
1: Oh that is so fun because uh, you know of the work that I've done and I haven't done a ton of work with bishops certainly a growing area of our ministry mm-hmm. but boy I've met some unbelievably just just unbelievably great men very holy men yes. their, their hearts are on fire they really do want what's best for their priests they really do yes. want want their their churches to thrive and and the faithful to come alive and be on mission and, and the how to yes. is the tricky part, right? In terms of structure alignment meetings, like there's just so Without many skills doubt. that go with, with, with that yes. desire, Yeah, because desire isn't enough. You need the motivation and the skills. That's and, right. Um, you know, and there's you know.
0: another element that comes into play here too, Ron. And this for me actually was probably the most revolutionary finding in, in my research. And okay. I was not looking for this at all. What I found, is that the, the larger a diocese was,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the more likely that it was ineffective and had a lower health score? Hmm. And that's a bit counterintuitive because you would think, oh, these large archdioceses that got more resources, they get the pick of the litter to become their mm-hmm. bishop. Uh, but it's actually the contrary. The larger the dio- diocese is, the less likely. That ranks high in organizational health in diocesan health um and i i was what is going on is there something wrong with my my measure or yeah. is the, the data trying to tell me something about the nature of the church itself and i think it's the latter because what happens and i've I talked to several bishops about this talked with many other people and there seems to be at least Hypothetically, and again, this is a hypothesis which would need to be uh, borne out with future study and further research, but it would seem that as a diocese grows in size, Mm -hmm. the ability of of the bishop as a pastor to be close to his priests, and then by extension to the people, becomes less. Mm. And it's in the data, there seems to be a sweet spot between 50 to 125 Active dioceses and priests is where most of the healthy dioceses are. Once you have fewer priests than that or more priests than that, they tend to go off into unhealthier situations, which makes sense because how many personal relationships, fatherly relationships can you have? Mm-hmm. It, it starts to get over a certain amount. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I've talked to priests, parish priests who say, I'm lucky if I get to talk with the archbishop once a year. Yeah. He doesn't even know my name. Yeah. How is a priest? And there was another study that was done from the Catholic University of America um, that last fall, which was actually a year and a half ago now, uh, which is really fascinating. It talks about the trust level between uh, diocesan priests and their bishops. <laughs>
1: yeah. And it shows some kind of
0: scary things.
1: Oh, I'd like and to see that study, Father Daniel, because I see that everywhere I go. It's not good. It's
0: That is a study well worth reading. It's very well done. Uh, I reference it uh, on several occasions within my own dissertation. Uh, But that study shows that there's been a a significant decline in the trust in bishops. And the trust is higher in smaller dioceses because the bishop is closer to his priests. And that affects everything. Because the the, the priests are the primary agents of evangelization, of bringing the sacraments uh, to people within the diocese. Mm -hmm. And if they feel supported by their bishop, uh, if they're guided by the bishop towards holiness of life and a healthy lifestyle, uh, that will, uh, you know, bring out much good fruit with the rest of the church
1: let me let me toss something at you for your for, for to get some feedback from you because I have a perspective on that because it's no different in a, lo- a local parish. like the bigger the church, sure. the, the less likely the priest is. But that's our clerical model kicking us right square in the butt from my opinion. Mm-hmm. And that's where we don't understand structure because when I work with bigger dioceses, oftentimes they have you know um, vicars of this or that. And the other thing they sure. have mm-hmm. they have um, uh, auxiliary bishops, they have deans and all this stuff. None of those positions are empowered with a clear set of expectations. And so we have this loose structure that has no teeth in it. And Mm -hmm. so what I find is those men would love nothing more than to be an extension of the bishop or archbishop's responsibility to love, care, support, so that these Mm -hmm. men can flourish in their vocation. But instead, they think their job is to just go and do confirmations. Uh, and so they don't yes, feel empowered because we don't know how to empower other people. But my experience is when we teach people to have a structure, why it exists, and then empower the people within your structure to actually do something good and take ownership of the outcomes all of sure. a sudden, because people need to be cared for. They don't need to be coddled by just one person. It's too much to ask.
0: That's exactly right. And, and I think there's two ways you can do that you can have a very effective archbishop who, who knows how to manage and knows how to empower people, knows how to mm-hmm. distribute the leadership. But uh, what I found in the data, mm-hmm. there were only two archbishops of large dioceses that made it into the top quartile of healthy diocese.
1: Mm.
0: Right. Archbishop of Miami, Archbishop of Cincinnati. Wow. And, and so what you have is because of the way that, uh, priests learn leadership as a parish priest and then get promoted yes. to bishop there it's a style where they, they don't have experience of, of you know large-scale management of a large corporation which is which whats uh, what is what that is what our large dioceses are today mm-hmm. and so because of that they're ineffective with these larger structures so there's yeah. two solutions either either we teach people and, and train them for yeah. better leadership yeah. or we need to Break up the large diocese so that they are more uh, manageable for the leadership style that uh, our bishops have right. uh, learned through being mm-hmm. a pastor uh, over the years, and, and perhaps it's a combination of both. That's, yeah. we're, we're Catholics, so we're not either or; we're both and. <laughs> and, and but I think that the, these are yeah. these are serious strategic questions that the church, not only in the United States but worldwide, has to look at. One of the fascinating things that I found uh, in my in my studies, just as a curiosity, because I went down all kinds of rabbit holes. I, bet I looked at uh, <laughs> bet, man, uh I, I looked at uh the, the size of dioceses worldwide and the number of dioceses oh. in various countries. So for example, Italy has 143 um, dioceses, if I remember correctly, but only like 60 million Catholics. And you've got in, for example, in Germany there's 26 or 27 million Catholics and only 26 dioceses. Hmm. And so you've got like an average of, I don't know, it's like 75,000 Catholics per diocese in Italy and a million Catholics per diocese in Germany. So there's just like this disconnect, which doesn't, doesn't make sense. And you can see that those large archdioceses in Germany, well, frankly, it's leading to schism or or proximity with schism right now. Uh, yeah. Because as a friend of mine who is a, a priest in Germany said, there are a lot of people who work for the church who don't go to church. Yeah. Because yeah. it's become a large bureaucracy that's detached from what we said at the beginning, Ron, that yeah. being encounter yeah. right. with Christ, the evangelizing mission of the church. So that's just, I think, a, a theological question. Is, is there something in the very nature of the church where the flock needs to be of a smaller size, so that the bishop and the priests can be truly a pastor and close to other people, mm-hmm. perhaps. But well, what the case, I think we have to look at yeah. these structural and these leadership questions in order to more faithfully carry out the mission of the church.
1: Father Daniel, I can't thank you enough on behalf of all of us for taking the time to to buck the trend that your uh, professor asked you not to do this study and definitely don't do, <laughs> don't double that, and you did. And the the, the findings and the, even this conversation is so rich. Mm-hmm. And I am definitely going to download the, the your dissertation and just dive into it. It's just this is such a fun conversation an important conversation i hope as you guys are listening to this wherever you are uh that you share it with some friends and have a conversation i think maybe this is something we'd put together a maybe a conversation guide around some questions because this is a great episode to really wrestle with some fun things have some neat conversations and, right. and we have you to thank everyone I
0: see, I see that the work that i've done in this dissertation not as conclusive but as really yes. opening up doors I, opening up possibilities for other avenues of research, yeah. for further honing of the, the factors that, that contribute to the health of a diocese. Uh, and, and some of those I point out at the, uh, towards the end of my research and the, the practical takeaways. But I'm hoping uh, that, that this will have an impact on the church and help us to implement better leadership training, uh, mm-hmm. better selection of future bishops, knowing what it takes in order to, to be an effective pastor of a diocese. And a look at some of these structural elements that impact the effectiveness of the church in carrying out her mission. Wow.
1: Once again, thank you very much. This has been a, a complete treat, uh, certainly one that I'll go back and watch again. And again. I have about four pages of notes while we were talking, <laughs> just <laughs> writing feverishly. I don't know why I do that. I can go back and listen and take notes then. But I'm, sure. I'm just so engaged in, in the topic and I love your insights um god bless you in your yep. continued work with schools and in the catholic church and if, if well, again, god bless you
0: in your work too ron
1: i appreciate that and i'm going to put the the con the information for what you've done in the show notes so that people right. can uh can connect with that if anybody wanted to connect with you are you on social media or can they uh i am
0: uh, i post almost daily on instagram uh it also goes on facebook um x ex- uh YouTube occasionally and uh what's the other one? TikTok. Awesome. So
1: wow, you're 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 wow. active. So I will get all those links from you too and put those all in Great. the show notes because I just really encourage you guys to follow Father Daniel and what he's doing. He just again your love for Jesus and his church are palpable and the work that you've done is important. So thank you. Wow. Great.
0: Well thank you, Ryan. God, bless, and God you. bless you and all your listeners.
1: You're, right. Yeah. Thank you so much. And for those of you that have been watching and listening in today, thank you for, for what you do in the church. And for all you clergy that have been listening, I want you to know something. I really value and appreciate your yes. Being a clergy in our culture today is not easy. And I don't think any of us has an answer as if there's only one way to do things. But here's what I know for sure. You are God's A plan for your diocese or your parish. And your closeness and intimacy with Christ, uh, that's where all the good things spring out. And if you need help, there's all kinds of uh, ministries like ours that have been popping up to really come alongside of you in what you're doing to help you be fruitful uh, and reach the impact that's in your heart for the kingdom of God. So again, thank you. You're in our prayers and we'll see you next time. I want to encourage you as you lead this week, be faithful to God and generous to others. See you next time, and remember, if you're still breathing, you are powered for impact.